0: Thank you, Clint and Richard. Well, church, it has been an interesting morning, so to speak, you know, from not being able to have water in our community to hearing crickets chirping in the background when there's a pause, and so what we're going to assume when the crickets are chirping, it's not just silence, but that they're praising God and giving glory to God in that moment. But but it has been an interesting day, but but I think it helps kind of illustrate a point, have you ever been on a trip where it just seems as if everything was trying to keep you from going on that trip or from keep you from actually enjoying that trip? There was a time whenever I was an associate youth minister at my home church and we took a group of youth to the Black Hills of South Dakota. Uh, I was about 21 years old and we had about six youth with us and my best friend and I, we were helping lead this along with our youth pastor and we're excited We thought it was going to be the best trip that we'd had all summer, getting to backpack through the Black Hills of South Dakota. Well, lo and behold, about 30 minutes before we arrive at the place where we're going to get out, Greg, who was our youth pastor and a dear friend of mine, he says, Kevin, I can't turn the van anymore. And I said, what do you mean you can't turn the van anymore? And we're going around windy curves, and the steering axle had busted, and we had to pull over to the side of the road. And now we're an hour and a half away. So we call people, they come, and they give us another van, and they take that one, and we say, okay, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. And we start hiking. So they take their van, We're gonna, they're going to repair it. We're, we're going to backpack. We were right there where we needed to be, and we we're just going to backpack for the next few days, and then we're going to be able to get back in touch with them. All is great, right? You know, you get to continue with your trip. Well, we started backpacking, and we get to a place, and and if you've ever seen National Treasure 2, there's a, a part in there where they are supposedly behind Mount Rushmore, and there's a lake right there. Well, we were at that lake. It's not right behind Mount Rushmore, but we were hiking with full-on, da- you know, overnight backpacks, and everyone's kind of looking at us a little bit funny. And and I thought this was a little bit odd that they were looking at us funny because we're backpacking, but no one else had backpacks. And so sure enough, we just kind of find a spot off in the woods and we set up our back, our tents, and we have a great night. Not thinking anything of it. Well, we camp out that night and we get up early the next morning and we leave, and I was leading the group, and our youth pastor was gonna go check out, see what's going on with the van. And we kind of got lost. And if you've never been on in the wilderness and you're looking at the map and all of a sudden the trail that's supposed to be there isn't there, you don't have GPS, you don't have cell service. And I have six youth with me wondering, what are we going to do? And so we ended up hiking, we just keep going around, and we finally get to a point, and we told our youth pastor we were going to meet him at Mount Rushmore about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, 5 o'clock had come, and we were about 17 miles away from Mount Rushmore, with no cell service, and he has no idea where we are, and all of a sudden, so we're at a place, we're at a road, and... Being a 21-year-old, the best thought that I had is, well, I guess I'm going to have to start walking there. There's no other way. Like I, I'm just going to have to go there and hitchhike. So I hitchhiked from that campground all the way to Mount, Rushmore, to, to Mount Rushmore where we got there to this mall. And we ended up getting there. I took a youth with me. Some family picked us up, which I don't know how smart it was for us. We jumped in the back of a truck because how else am I supposed to get there? Long story short, we get to our campsite that night after kind of a lot of laughs and a lot of fun, and we get kicked out of our campsite that night. We were illegally camping in a place, got fined, and had to go find a hotel room that night at about 11 o'clock at night with park rangers. And and the story went on and on, and the next place we tried to camp the next day, we weren't able to, to camp there either. Our van wasn't ready, and we were just ready to be home at the end of it. And we look back upon that time, and and it was a great story, it was a lot of fun, and we laugh about it. But in the moment, it wasn't a lot of fun. We didn't enjoy it, because nothing was going right. And sometimes that's how life feels, doesn't it? Where nothing goes right, as if there's something that's trying to keep you from moving forward. The last two weeks, we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah and how Nehemiah has Away, He was exiled and had been away for, for decades and Jerusalem had, had laid in ruins and how people had gone back to rebuild the temple and to teach the law and he was going back to build the wall around Jerusalem for protection. And that first week we looked at how Nehemiah lamented and he prayed and committed himself to those things. And then last week we talked about this idea where he went and he he laid out the challenges facing the people of Israel and what they needed to do, and they agreed to strengthen their hands and to, to work at building the wall, that the community was foundational for it. And I talked about for us that one of our greatest challenges is moving from a congregation of individuals to one family. And what does that family look like, and how are we to operate? And what is our business as a family? Because, you see, if we just focus upon fellowship without the mission of the church, without doing the business of the church, we become become nothing more than just a country club with members who have rights as opposed to owners who have a responsibility, that we have a responsibility being a part of this body, but before we can talk about the mission of the church, which we will the next two weeks, and I can promise you next week, you won't want to miss next week. For those who are watching online, I want to encourage you to be here in person because we're going to do something that I truly think is going to be an amazing experience for the life of our church. And it will be a blessing to, to our members, but also to our community in ways that I, I can't even begin to, to imagine how God may use it to begin something in the life of our church. But before we can even talk about that, I think we have to come to realize that there are forces, things coming up along the way in this journey of life and of pursuing Jesus that will take us off course. I don't know if you realize, but I think you may, that we're always so close from losing focus of why we're here. I mean, all it takes sometimes is not having water on a Sunday morning for it seems like to derail everything that we'd planned for and longed to do. That there's sometimes a resistance that it seems that we come across that we don't always have an answer for. And sometimes we may wonder, God, what are you doing? This not only in our personal lives, but also in the life of our church. I mean, this past year, we all know but it seems like things happen on Sundays quite a bit, and it didn't happen that way beforehand. Perhaps maybe there's nothing into it, but perhaps maybe God is trying to show us something. What that is, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's just a coincidence that this is taking place, but whatever the case is, there's resistance to us pursuing to be one family, to move from a congregation of individuals to a congregation committed to prayer, to a people committed to these things to the gospel and to Jesus there always seems to be something waiting in the wings to distract us to move us away from that focus in our individual lives but also within the life of our church and you see that's what Nehemiah is getting at Nehemiah experiences this very thing in his own life, in their work to build the wall around Jerusalem for protection. There's these individuals, and if you can imagine Jerusalem, they have pretty much enemies surrounding them on the north and the south and the east and the west. Enemies that they've kind of been at odds against for a really long time. Even though all of this area is controlled by Persia, they serve as proxies to the Persian Empire. They've set up little bitty governors or rulers for these areas, but they still have their own animosity towards each other, and perhaps there are some, these other groups, that don't want to see Jerusalem flourish again. Perhaps they're afraid because if they continue to build this wall, it's going to signal to Persia that we are revolting against Persia. And then the Persian army will come in and ransack not only Jerusalem, but everybody else to make sure that they get the message. But there it says in verse 7, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn and look at the screen as well. But there's some individuals. Sambalit. He was actually probably a Yahwehist. His daughter is married to the grandson of the high priest in Jerusalem. Nehemiah talks about this in Nehemiah chapter 13. So he likely may have been governor of Samaria, which would have included Jerusalem at this point. There are some extra biblical uh, documents that we have that point to this. But Nehemiah tells us that his daughter was married to the grandson of the high priest. And perhaps his power was threatened. That if Nehemiah were to complete this, people would look to him And not sample it, and then you see these other names, enemies of Israel, that goes back generations. In verse eight, says, "And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it." The text doesn't tell us exactly what their motives were, but I suspect that it was one to keep Jerusalem from flourishing. They either, A, wanted to hold on to their own control and power. They were afraid of what the Persians might do. But whatever the case, these groups were plotting together. Then in verse 10, it says, "In Judah, it was said that the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You know, we often get excited about things. New Year's, I stopped doing New Year's resolutions a long time ago because for the very reason that once you start it, it never fails that within a few weeks that you're no longer doing that. And sometimes you may continue that thing and it was a great thing, but the people of Jerusalem at this point, they're struggling. They, they see all the work that they have to do. And not only just is the work before them, but there are now people. And likely rumors were going about the city. People knew what was going on and about the potential of others attacking them. I can imagine. I can imagine how hard it would be. What started out is yes, we agree with you, Nehemiah. Let us strengthen our hands with you, Nehemiah. Let us put ourselves into action, Nehemiah. But then all of a sudden, it seems as if things are going to be derailed. We can't do this. So often it's hard to see beyond the challenge that's facing us. To see beyond what could be and not what is. But I think that's what the hope of the gospel is, isn't it? We see a world that's hurting and broken. I mean, just to pause for a moment, and I usually don't chase rabbits, but I feel like I need to. I got on... The internet this morning which isn't always a great thing to do on Sunday morning and went to Fox News to their website just to see what's going on in the world and you see about the tragedy that's unfolding in Afghanistan right now and whatever you feel about that and everyone can have different thoughts and opinions and I'm not telling you what we should or what we shouldn't do but just the tragedy of the whole thing and it breaks my heart and I think about people who are Christians in Afghanistan the small minority of what's going to happen to them those that helped our country And you look at that, and you look at this moment, and it's hard to see beyond this tragedy of what good can come from this. And it's the same thing that we see in every other part of our life. What good can come from this? How do I get past this? And you see it's in that moment where the gospel has so much hope, that it's hard to see beyond this moment, but it's... Because Christ has defeated sin and death, the first fruits, that he was resurrected and that we too will experience the bodily resurrection, that there is hope that he will return again and establish his kingdom on earth and redemption and restoration will take place. It's so hard to sometimes see that though, isn't it? We get so focused and lost on what's right in front of us. We fail to see what good can come from it. But then Nehemiah says there in verse 14, Do not be afraid of them, he says. But what? Remember the Lord. His first word to them is remember the Lord. And I can imagine at that point, Nehemiah knew the stories of God acting for the people of Israel, throughout its countless history, going back to the very beginning of God calling Abraham and giving him a son, giving them and delivering them into the promised land. The stories they could tell, the stories that are our story of God's redemption and action for his story to continue. It's a beautiful thing. Remember the Lord. Then in verse 15, we continue. It says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. That God worked and moved, heard their cries and their prayers, and that it was God as the one who was in control, that he was sovereign in that place and in that moment, just as he is sovereign, in our world today, and had frustrated their plan, and they all went back to work. Now, the way, the way they went back to work was probably a little bit different than how they started that work. They went to work building with one hand and having a sword in another hand, just in case, for Preparation. So there's a part, yes, God is completely in control, but they continue to to still make plans and preparations because you never know what might come up or when you might need to defend yourself, just as he says there. If you hear the trumpet sound, run to that place. It doesn't mean we are the ones who have the complete authority that we take moments and situations and bend them to our own will and our own outcomes. I think what we need to see primarily in this text is that they trusted the Lord because throughout the biblical text, God often works not through power and might, but in ways that they would have never thought. Gideon didn't take great armies to defend, but it was a small number. It was constantly God's action who saved the people of Israel. But it was their faithfulness to follow him, even in the midst of that. Even when they couldn't see beyond the tragedy, God called them to follow them as he was bringing them. In one example, out of Egypt, the people were all worried. What are we going to do now, Moses? You brought us out to this desert now. This is freedom is great. But, but at least back in, in Egypt, we had food and we had water. They couldn't see beyond the tragedy in that moment, but that God rescued them and saved them by parting the Red Sea and leading them safely to the other side. It's always in ways that we least expect for God to act. But we have to look beyond the tragedy to see the hope and the hope that we have as Christians in the gospel. That at the end of the day, we know who won. We know how the story ends, church. There should be great hope and comfort in that. No matter what is taking place, we have hope and we know who has authority over this earth. We know who sits at the right hand of the Father. As the Father has sent the Son, so the Son sends us into the world. But we do not go alone. We have the Spirit of God with us. it's easy for us to get knocked off of balance. You see, in the New Testament, Paul talks about this, and Jesus talks about this as well. That there's a couple ways that we will experience resistance in our lives, and also, as the mission of the church, what we are called to do as the body of Christ, the church universal, but also our local congregation. And the first is that there will be spiritual resistance. Now, I don't have a A systematic theology of demons and the spiritual forces in the world, but but I believe they exist. I believe it's a a part of our world. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over his present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul believed, and we see countless times Jesus casting out demons, Paul talking about these spiritual forces that that we can't see, but they exist. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, who he's talking about, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Peter writes in his book in chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It was in Luke 22 where we are told the story of Jesus with Peter, and, and Jesus tells Peter, look, Satan has asked to sift you about what you're going to experience. You see, church, there are forces in this world that are evil. It's hard to fully understand, to grasp, but you probably have been in places where you have felt that or experienced it and seen it may not have the words for it, and we have other words for it today in our modern, what we think, post-enlightenment culture. But there are forces in the world that we fully don't understand. And as I said, I don't have a great systematic theology of these things, and here's why. I believe that they exist, but we see in Scripture that Jesus is greater than these things, that he has overcome them. He has overcome, defeated the powers and principalities of this world. And so one, I don't deny that there's spiritual warfare taking place. To deny it, I think, is to be somewhat of a functional atheist. But I also don't look behind every rock and tree and stump that there's a demon behind that. And so it's hard to always fully grasp about what's going on, but I know what Jesus says and what we see in Scripture. In 1 John 4, 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That through the power of Jesus, that we no longer have to be afraid of Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Through his death on the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of this world. And so, church, we don't have to be afraid of these things. But we have to recognize them. You see, it never seems to fail that whenever you're talking to someone about the gospel, you feel like you're about to move into this really... Significant conversation, even with someone just about life. And all of a sudden, there's always seems to be a distraction coming up, doesn't there? I don't know if that's happened for you, but it happens on countless times where it always seems that there's something that distracts them from that. A phone call. Something else comes up. There's, It draws their attention away. Now, is there evil forces at that point? Maybe. Maybe not. I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that the last thing that Satan... Once is for his church universal and for our churches to be one family. To where we are in agreement about taking the gospel to a lost and hurting world. To speaking Jesus into all the places throughout our community. Where there may not be a presence. It's the last thing that the forces of this world want to see take place. And so we have to be aware of it, church, that there is going to be resistance, spiritual resistance. And so, church, that's why I've invited us to pray, to pray, to commit ourselves to prayer so that doors may be opened up, as Paul talks about in Colossians 4, 3 through 4. Pray so that a door may be opened up to share the gospel, that when we go before the Lord, we can be confident in our prayers, to defeat, and to overcome the forces of this world. But the second type of resistance comes from our own doing, which is probably more often the case than the others. Our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. And there are some things that I thought about what can keep us. How can we add resistance to pursuing God's mission for His church? And the first thought that came to my mind is entertainment and false teaching. That we often want to come to church, and hopefully not this church. Hopefully your ears are not tickled at this church. But that truth is spoken. But you see, we see in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Jesus talks about this as false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. That if we come to church to be entertained, that we don't want to hear the hard things, that we don't want to open ourselves up to God's word, to speak truth into our life, to lay our entire life bare before the gospel. May we always be open to rebuke, to correction from God's word. The second is arrogance or self empowerment. We think we can do it ourselves. And as Americans and Baptists and evangelicals, we can kind of have that attitude. We think we can just grab life by the horns and we can muster this up ourselves. That if we just can get the right strategy in place, if we can get the right forces and the right people and all the right things, then it's going to work perfectly. But by doing that, we fail to realize that there is also another warfare that's being waged, one of a spiritual nature. Just as we see in Nehemiah, what does he tell them? Remember the Lord. It was the Lord who frustrated their plans. And for us, if we don't submit ourselves to what the Lord wants to do, then it's all for naught. Everything that we do would be done in vain. If the Lord is not the one guiding it, in control of it. And starting it. Another way is unrepentant sin in our own lives, but also as a congregation. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5. That unrepentant sin can destroy a congregation. If things that are not dealt with, if they're overlooked or glossed over. It will make a mockery of what the body of Christ is to be in the world. But I think the greatest resistance that we'll all face, and myself included in this church, is apathy. Revelation 2.4 says this, as John is writing about the seven churches, in Jesus' words it says, You have abandoned your first love. From what Jesus tells those at Ephesus, you have abandoned your first love. You've done a lot of good things, you've done all this other stuff, but you no longer are keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's one of the things that often I worry about in my own life. I worry about that for us as a church so often because we're always one decision away from moving further away from God's mission. i abandoned my first love galatians 6 9 says this and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up guys i'm not church i'm not just talking about being here on sunday morning that's only 50 percent of kind of the work that we're called to do being here is an important thing but as a church how are we sending people back out into the community it's not apathy necessarily towards attending on a Sunday morning. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, you're the bravest ones. You came when you didn't get to have a bath. But you see, church, it's not just an apathy towards coming on Sunday morning, which I think can slowly creep in. I think COVID has changed things, and we have to be mindful of that. But I think an apathy even of how do we live our faith out into the real world, Monday through Saturday. How does that play out? How are we embodying the gospel? And I'm not just talking about you need to invite your co-worker to church, which just, that's an important thing to do, but how is the reign of Christ, his lordship of your life, he is lord over everything that you do in your life. How is that playing out in tangible ways where you live and where you work? So often we can, be apathetic and just say, well, it's none of my business or this is just how we do things here. They don't reflect the gospel in any coherent way. It's not just an apathy towards Sunday morning, but an apathy towards how we live our entire life. And I don't have great answers for what all that looks like, but church, I can tell you over the coming weeks and months, we're going to be exploring what this looks like. How not only do we gather people in our church, but how do we scatter people into the world? So whether you work a nine-to-five job, whether you own your own business, whether you're retired, how is the gospel manifesting itself in your life for God's glory? Because that's eventually, just to give you a little clue for where we're going in the next couple weeks, we do this for God's glory, for what God has done for the world. For the sake of the world, we serve, we do things, we tell people about Jesus for the glory of God. Because this thing that has happened in the world that is so incredible, that we've experienced this salvation, that it is for God's glory. And through that, things that we can never imagine will begin to happen. You see, church, We will face resistance. You walk out this door, there's going to be things. You may have the biggest argument of your life, or you already had that argument on your way to church. That happens too, all the time. Resistance. But may we not take our eyes off of Jesus. And as that great hymn says, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus. May we look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim, in the light of his glory and praise. May we always turn our eyes upon Jesus. And may you turn your eyes upon Jesus this day. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for what you have done in the world. We thank you for salvation and redemption and for making all things new. God, is resistance comes our way may we seek you may we keep our eyes focused on you and we pray these things in Jesus name amen church at this time our deacons are going to come forward and we're going to conclude our service today by taking communion again just a reminder uh, as you come forward just extend your hand and our deacons will place the wafer in your hand, and give you the cup as well. But I want to read from 1 Corinthians our passage for us. And then invite you at that point after my prayer to come forward when you're ready. If you need to sit there in your spot, you need to confess their sins in your life, then I want to encourage you to do that, to take time before you partake in this moment. That we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, may we remember. May we remember the significance of this, that we are one family when we partake in this through Christ Jesus. May we remember the poor, in our midst. as Paul's larger context here. May we remember them and not forget our responsibility to them. May we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. And may we remember the hope that we have of his future coming. Let us pray. God, in this moment, we ask, Lord, that you forgive us of our sins. As we do this in remembrance of you, Father, may we glorify you in this act, signifying to the world that we are one family, that your blood and your body was broken and your blood poured out for us. May we do this in honor of you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We pray, Lord, that you move in this time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come forward at this time now, church. If you would like to remain seated too, raise your hand and our deacons will serve you as well.